Welcome back to Let's Talk About Today with Arvin. It has been quite a while since we've uh, last chatted. New Year's, just around the corner. Uh, But today on the show, uh, I could say it's a very great Christmas gift. Uh, (laughs) We have someone very special on the show. I'm very glad to say, Alvin Tejdo. Alvin, how's it going? I'm doing great, Arvin. Thanks for having me on. No, it's uh, the pleasure is all mine. I mean, uh, you know, uh, political candidates... Uh, very highly educated man, former political staffer, uh, leadership candidate. I mean, man, you've done it all and you're still so young. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't feel so young nowadays. Uh, I feel like uh, 2020 has aged all of us uh, <laughs> sort of rapidly. Uh, oh, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm losing some hair. So, yeah, it's yeah, definitely exactly. been a tough year. So, I mean, Alvin, uh, you're definitely an interesting man for sure. But uh, you know, you're you're well known in the Ontario Liberal Party. I'd say you're well known in the Ontario politics scene. Uh, but for the folks at home, for you know the young people just sort of getting into politics, can you give like a bit of background about you know what made you want to get into politics and uh, what type of work you started off with? So, I mean, maybe I'll start with the most obvious thing was that I ran for leader of the Ontario Liberal Party because I was trying to take on Doug Ford in the next election in 2022, and I think. You know, I still consider myself a young person. I'm technically millennial. I'm 37 years old. Uh, I do have three young kids who are six, eight, and 10 years old uh, who are in the school system and who are, you know, seeing all the repercussions of uh, the decisions being made by this government. And I thought it was particularly important that there was a voice out there. And until Kate Graham got in the race, she's nine months younger than I am. Uh, I was the youngest candidate in the race for, uh, for a few months there. And I thought it was important that we highlighted issues that were really focused on the future. And so I made our campaign um, really based around uh, a couple of key issues that I know are facing young people nowadays. I thought it was really important that we started exploring and expanding the idea of a universal basic income here in Ontario. I thought that was incredibly important, so I proposed that. Um, I also saw that there are inefficiencies within our education system and that uh, with the Ford government cutting left, right, and center, we needed to do the best we could with the resources we had. And then I think as a society, we've moved past sort of our you know, religious divisions, and we don't really need uh, multiple school boards uh, when you know, two language school boards will do. And uh, knowing that the rest of the country, most of the country, and most of Ontarians support that idea and have moved on past that too. I propose to merge the school boards. And lastly, because it's affected me so uh, personally while my kids were still really young, I introduced the idea of uh, universal childcare um, for the Ontario Liberal Party to, to propose uh, for the next election for a number of reasons. For one, I mean, the cost of childcare is exorbitant on families. Um, two, it disproportionately affects women and their employability. Three, there's huge benefits to actually having uh, kids start their early childhood education sooner. And really, we need to start earning people's votes again by doing more than just criticizing the opposition or criticizing the current government of the day and uh, start proposing ideas that will get people motivated and excited to vote liberal again. So, I mean, as you said, Arvin, I, I, you know, I was a political staffer for a number of years. I worked for four different ministers in the Ontario government as a senior policy advisor and a senior communications advisor. But, you know, I mean, people kind of do their stints in government and you see how the sausage is made and you start looking 
for ways to, to do it better the next time around, right? So I thought it was important that we had that voice in the leadership election and that we were pushing ideas that could get us uh, more votes. Alvin, I feel like you had a very, very interesting and uh, new, you know, fresh perspective to bring to the game. I mean, as you said, you did, you know, work uh, under the provincial, um, you know, liberal government for years in different, you know, capacities. But I feel like you also, given the opportunity, you saw, you know, perhaps what made so many Ontarians not want to vote liberal in that election. And, you know, I like Kathleen Wynne. She did a lot of amazing things, but you were sort of looking beyond that. You were thinking in the future, you know, universal basic income, you know, merging the two, uh, you know, school boards together and, you know, childcare. I mean, these are three, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people now who are big fans of these, you know, policy ideas perhaps, but I'd say in Ontario, you were, you know, uh, someone, one of the loudest voices when it came to, um, you know, talking about that. So initially, what what sort of inspired you to want to, you know, you know, throw your hat in the ring and, you know, run for this, this leadership election? I mean, Arvind, I think, I think the thing that you realize when you run for the party, and I ran for the, the Ontario Liberals in 2018, I ran for Kathleen, I believe in what she did. You know, she put out the pilot there for basic income. Uh, she expanded childcare to, uh, uh, to two years, uh, two and a half years old uh, for children. Um, so she did a lot of great things and I thought that was, uh, really admirable and we wanted, and I wanted to be a part of that. I think there were, you know, I, I don't, I don't think we need to sort of revisit the 2018 election, but you know, there were a lot of things working against us, uh, working against the party in that election. Uh, and it wasn't that I necessarily think we had the wrong policies. Um, but I think, you know, the sort of attacks and the, and the history of the party sort of made it difficult for anybody, especially Kathleen to, uh, to try and keep going. So, you know, I think it's every, I don't know, every so often you need a, a bit of a, a cleaning house and, and sort of new blood in the party to try and reinvigorate people and get them involved in the party again and get them excited uh, with the party again. And the, you know, we, we like to sort of talk about generations as if they were this monolith, but, and they're not, and they don't all vote with the same intentions, obviously, but they are the largest voting block. There are now more people 18 to 40 than there are baby boomers. So why do baby boomers get to decide all the policies and the direction of the government provincially, federally, municipally, um, you know, for the, until the end of time? I don't think that's uh, that's necessarily fair. And I think it's time that we stood up for ourselves and had a voice and decided uh, what we believed in and what we thought was important and what we want to run on. And so in the absence of somebody putting their hand up and saying they're going to do it, you know, someone needs to step up. And you know, I felt I needed to sort of put my money, put the money, put money where my mouth was and, uh, and, and step up and get involved and at least be you know, the advocate for our generation to sort of really focus on the future here. Definitely. And, you know, you, you did a fantastic job. Uh, one of my favorite moments during the convention was, you know, when you were going up to speak and not only like your supporters, but just everyone in general was just excited to see you go up there and, you know, just give your speech, talk about, uh, uh, you know, your policies, you know, as you said, new blood, fresh ideas. Um, 
I want to talk about particularly the school board, uh, the merging of the school boards, because I thought that was a pretty cool like idea. And it was something that wasn't talked about, um, you know, in the mainstream. And it, it definitely is, is something that if it were to happen, it could save, you know, billions of dollars. It could, um, you know, really be a substantial, significant, positive change to the Ontario education system. So what, what sort of, you know, uh, initiated you to, uh, you know, propose this idea and, you know, speak out so, uh, you know, boldly about it? Yeah, so just to clarify, Arvin, I mean, other parties have said this before. This has been a controversial topic in Ontario for decades since Premier Davis extended religious school funding for Catholics. Uh, from grade 10 all the way through uh, grade 13 back in the 80s. Um, it's been a sort of a hot topic from party to party. There's been usually an advocate within each party uh, for this. Uh, Michael Peru ran on this for the NDP. Uh, the Greens have adopted this as uh, their official platform. Uh, you do get the occasional conservative who will say that this is not right. What's interesting is that the Ontario Liberal Party has never really had anybody come out and say that they were in favor of this until I did. Um, and traditionally, you can you know trace the Ontario Liberal Party's roots to farmers in southwestern Ontario and Catholics in Ontario. So you know taking this position was definitely a bit of a a bit of a risk. But uh, I thought you know we're in a position right now where we understand what the right thing to do is. Um, I think uh, Ontarians are pretty smart people and they know that the studies have shown we could save $1.6 billion a year um, if we merged the boards. We could also help consolidate and save some schools, especially in rural and northern Ontario. Um, and I got a lot of support for putting this policy out and for suggesting that it's time that we revisit this again, even though the people who are against it are very angrily and vehemently against it. Um, the majority of Ontarians, and there were two polls that came out during the leadership race after I announced this, um, a majority of Ontarians supported this, uh, supported this move, um, which, you know, they understand is the right thing to do. And I had, you know, a, a chair, a former chair of the Catholic school board um, endorse me and the plan for this because they saw the challenges that uh, the multiple board system um, presents uh, to local boards and communities and they saw the duplication and they saw the unnecessary um, sort of competition that exists uh, for resources and to be honest there is a bit of a, a challenge around the the rights of it right if you're a teacher and you want to teach in the Catholic school board and you aren't Catholic you don't have the right to work there uh, without sort of special dispensation from uh, from the school board to sort of say we don't have we can't find anyone better so we'll we'll take you um, and you need a letter from a priest to sign off on your eligibility to work in that school board which you know for any other government paying job you would never see um, but we do have that for our, our Catholic school teachers which is kind of surprising still yeah and, I mean it seems so old fashioned you know compared to you know, all, all the other older traditions that we've thrown away. Um, and, you know, I, I went to a Catholic school myself, like during high school, uh, not because I'm Catholic myself, just because it was the closest school uh, to my home. And, you know, there was lots of opportunities that as like a high school student, I sort of missed out on because, you know, all the, all the public school kids would have all the, you know, 
larger fundings and uh, you know they have all these cool clubs and everything and then we'd have just you know all the basics and um, it, it, it did seem kind of strange that you know as you said it, it originated as like an exclusive system because there, there was a large you know Catholic population and uh, it made sense back then but you know nowadays it, it could definitely be you know very fiscally responsible it can be good for um and you know in general uh you know prosperity of all schools um so it, it was definitely an innovative idea and i think we need more people you know thinking and not being afraid to uh you know speak out and as you said you, you had a former uh you know catholic uh school board trustee and endorse the idea um, you know, if you actually speak out with about what you believe, you know, people are going to come and support the idea, right? And, and Arvind, maybe the last thing I'll say about this is that this isn't an anti-Catholic movement. I mean, I'm of course, Catholic. yeah, I was raised Catholic. My wife and I are raising our kids Catholic. Our kids all go to Catholic school. I went to Catholic school. Um, but it's an equity piece, right? So my wife has French language rights because her family immigrated to Canada from France in the 1600s. Um, we're both Catholic, so we have the rights to send our kids to Catholic school, which non-Catholic parents don't have. Because of that, we get to choose where to send our kids between any of the four school boards in any region that we happen to live in in the, in, in the province. Whereas 70% of parents don't get that choice. They get one choice. They get to go to English and they get to go to public school, right? So you know, that's just, that's not fair. I mean, it's not, it's not a, a fair choice for people to have. And, you know, what, what affords me that privilege versus other parents, I don't think is, is, is right. And, you know, I spoke to lots of parents who, especially parents who live in rural communities who said, listen, I can't send my kid to the Catholic school across the street, which they can walk to. Uh, but instead, I got to send them 45 minutes on a bus each way. Uh, because it's a public school and the Catholic school here is full and they won't take us because we're not Catholic, right? So, you know, you, you couple that with some of the terrible remarks that you get from, you know, Toronto uh, school board trustees like Michael Del Grand, who will, you know, rail off the fact that uh, the LGBTQ plus community is basically the same as pedophilia and bestiality, uh, which is just insane and insulting to the community. Definitely. And you understand that LGBTQ plus students are you know, four times more likely to commit suicide and have mental health issues. And when they're not being taught in a safe environment, that's not good for anybody here in this province. And then to condone that by continuing to support counselors or uh, trustees like that uh, and a system like that, that perpetuates these sort of beliefs is still a difficult thing, is a difficult thing for me to consolidate given how I think progressive we are as a province for sure yeah 100 percent um you know and, and besides that I, I thought it was awesome that you definitely brought that on a a, a you know a, a mainstream platform in the liberal uh, sphere as you said like it, it wasn't something that was you know talked about before in the liberal circles and it was great that we had you know a, a leadership candidate talking about that uh but i think when i think about your campaign i also think about universal basic income and how much of a, um, you know, uh, vocal advocate you were for this policy. Um, and, you know, like, I think the first time I ever heard about universal basic income was, you know, Andrew Yang, um, which I don't know if you heard, but he's actually running to be mayor in New York. I think he's exploring uh, that candidacy, which I think is interesting. But, um, you know, universal basic income is, is, I think, is a very 
um, timely policy, especially in the time of COVID-19. Um, so I, I do you think perhaps you could share some of your thoughts with, you know, what you've been seeing during this pandemic, how Canadian families have been struggling and perhaps, you know, maybe both the federal government and the provincial government and parties should be revisiting this policy perhaps, um, you know, due to what's been going on in the recent pandemic and with the future to come. Yeah, I, I think what's fascinating, Arvin, is that you're right, this UBI is suddenly in vogue because of the pandemic. But, you know, Andrew Yang was running on this in the lead up to the uh, Democratic Convention. I was running on this well before the, uh, um, the Liberal Convention and the pandemic came up. And <laughs> what, what I find fascinating about it is, I mean, everybody's got kind of got this opinion about it and has a lot of misinformation in terms of what it actually is. Um, what it, when you sort of dive into a bit of the history of the basic income movement, you'll discover that it was actually uh, one of the biggest proponents of a basic income uh, was the conservative economist Milton Friedman and, uh, and even Richard Nixon uh, in the U.S. And in Canada, there's uh, Senator Hugh Siegel, who was chief of staff to Brian Mulroney, who was chief of staff to Bill Davis, who endorsed me, even though he's a conservative senator, um, because I was supporting basic income, because the, the very basis of a basic income is to essentially give people their dignity back and to give them agency to make their own decisions and to not have government get in the way of them sort of reaching their potential and, and doing what they can given the appropriate resources. Uh, Hugh Siegel likes to say that bootstraps need boots. Not everybody can pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Um, and that the government spends billions of dollars on social assistance, a lot of which is appropriate and a lot of which goes uh, to the right people and, and, and does a lot of good. But a lot of it is also very bureaucratic and a lot of it is also part of a cycle that perpetuates itself and keeps people locked into a cycle of poverty. Right. So the idea around a basic income was that we could spend all this money that we spend on social assistance and we can spend more to give people the dignity of a basic income so that it would actually allow them to grow as people and give them the opportunity to work, uh, give them the opportunity to take care of their children, uh, give them the opportunity to move to a better place, a safer neighborhood. and the fascinating, fascinating thing about this is all the data and all the research that's already been done. And so people's first reaction is always, you know, how much is this going to cost? And, you know, we're just giving people free money to sit on their ass uh, and do nothing. That's, that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, the Ontario pilot showed that 75% of the people who are on the basic income continued to work or found work because they were on a basic income and they used the basic income to supplement their existing salaries. Uh, so work levels do not go down uh, despite that fear that it does. The pilot that happened in Manitoba uh, a couple of decades ago, which actually ran for four years, showed an increase in education. People went back to school to, to reskill. Uh, it showed a decrease in hospital visits uh, by eight and a half percent. And if you can imagine how much 8.5% hospital visits would translate to a province as large as Ontario, uh, you're talking about billions of dollars in, in, in savings. Uh, and the last one, which, I, which blew my mind, was that domestic violence in Manitoba, in Dolphin, Manitoba, where the pilot was, went down 44%. Domestic violence went down 44%. Think about that. 
Think about the fact that the thing that drives people over the edge, and there's never an excuse for domestic violence, obviously. But the thing that drives people over the edge is often related to money. And when you are thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you don't have enough money for shelter, and you don't have enough money for food, then you get desperate and you do things you wouldn't normally do. Well, it's right? interesting you brought that up because I instantly, you know, start thinking about if, of course, every adult had, you know, a thousand bucks a month or, you know, a certain, you know, fixed income, uh, it could encourage many people who are in these situations who, you know, sometimes are, you know, psychologically abused and physically abused to, you know, they sometimes think of themselves that I have to stay in this because I, I have no other place to go. I have, you know, perhaps no money. I got, you know, I got, I have a kid maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And, and a universal basic income would empower those women and those, and those people in those relationships perhaps who are being abused and give them the, as you said, the dignity uh, they need, the, the power they need to, you know, be free and I guess innovate themselves, I guess, follow, you know, a career, you know, step out of a a toxic relationship. It's a very, very, there's, there's lots of great aspects with it for sure. No, absolutely. And, and these are lots of the stories that I heard, right? I mean, it it gives people, like you said, that agency and that ability to walk out in an abusive, abusive relationship. It gives, it gives families the ability to get and move into a safer neighborhood. It, it lets people who are potentially being taken advantage of by working, you know, four, five, six minimum wage jobs to leave those jobs and pursue uh, better jobs, right? It gives them that ability to, to walk away uh, and to find better things for themselves. And I met uh, hundreds of families, Arvin, uh, throughout my campaign um, to talk about basic income where people who were on the basic income pilot that Doug Ford canceled, even though he promised he would keep it going, um, felt just so betrayed um, by their government who said, I was finally getting my life in order. I had started my own business. I had, um, <laughs> I had done so many things that we were meaning to do and I was contributing to the economy. I was finally feeling like a part of society and not someone who was just constantly having to prove that they were poor and constantly having to justify getting the little social assistance money that they were getting and, you know, feeling like they were begging and they signed leases to, to, to have them live in better places. And then the Ford government canceled the pilot and these people just lost everything all over again. And they felt like all the progress that they had made, was suddenly lost and they couldn't get it back, right? It gave people a moment to breathe. And so I thought it was just unbelievably disrespectful and harmful for this government to do that to those 4,000 families who are part of the basic income pilot here in Ontario. And I think the other thing that people need to understand was that we're not talking about a system. There are different versions of basic income, right? There's sort of the Andrew Yang dividend model where everybody gets $1,000, and that's, and that's an interesting idea. And, you know, I'm, I'm not against it. And I think it's worth exploring. But the, 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 the version that I'm really a huge proponent of is the one that Senator Siegel talked about is the one that we were using in the basic income pilot, where we created an income floor to say that nobody, no adult in this province would ever fall below this line. Mm-hmm right? We would set it. We would set it to the poverty line, whatever we wanted to set it at and say, no one will fall below this line. And if you do fall below this line, we will top you up to make sure 
that you don't fall below this line. And that sort of income floor lets people stand up and basically, you know, do the things they need to do to be successful in life, right? And to not rely on the system. And so there's, if, if you or your listeners want to take a look at this, there's a, an amazing article written by Ma- Malcolm Gladwell um, in The New Yorker from a, a little while ago, where he talks about the million dollar homeless man. And this is just sort of a quick story. Basically, there was a, a guy named Murray who lived in Phoenix, Arizona, who was in and out of the system over and over and over again. He had a parole officer who knew him really well. He lived in a halfway house back and forth. He, w- he had chronic health care issues. He was in and out of the system. A lot of the times it was because um, he was homeless. And a lot of the times it was because the other things related to his poverty. One tragic day, he dies. And so his nurse, his healthcare worker, his parole officer, his halfway home mother, whatever it is, they all came to his funeral and they were having coffee after his funeral. And they discovered uh, on the back of a napkin, they said, you realize that the government spent a million dollars on this homeless man and we couldn't help him. And why is that? Because we didn't do anything with, like we made him jump through hoops of the system as opposed to solving the one thing that we could have done, which was just give him money to be able to, to, to set himself up, right? We spend more money not helping people go through poverty than we would with a basic income. And Feed Ontario did a study in Ontario and said the cost of poverty in Ontario alone is up to $33 billion a year, a year most of that in healthcare. But what if a nurse? She worked in the emergency room for over a decade. Every day, she says, somebody walks in through the door who doesn't need to be there, but they're there because it's minus 10 outside. They haven't eaten anything in two days. And the only, uh, the only way they can get help is to walk into the emergency room. So, you know, it's not a perfect system and it's not designed to do what it's currently doing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, definitely. And I, I didn't know all the, the, you know, the particular details. I mean, just listening to you right now, you know, you definitely got me on board. Uh, I bet there's going to be a bunch of people listening who, um, you know, may look at, you know, the universal basic income that you were proposing and say, you know, this isn't that much out of the question. It's basically cutting out the middleman and just doing what's right, you know, like just directly helping those people who need the help the most. Um, You were talking about, you know, how the Ford government was, uh, you know, he canceled uh, the the pilot projects. And I I wanted to talk a bit about uh, what the Ford government's been up to uh, during this uh, unprecedented pandemic. Um, And I mean, I don't know where to start. Uh, So much, you know, tragedies uh, when, when it's come to, the, the the school to you know province wide covid case ratio i mean the way he handled uh, that in, instead of actually creating a plan a comprehensive plan so that kids could go back to school and parents could go back to work uh no instead of doing that he decided i'm going to go on a you know a summer tour and uh tour around the province and maybe you know get some votes from people get some support uh and we're we're seeing the result of that uh and, um, you know, you were actually telling me about how um, I, I, you said you and I know a bunch of other people who a uh, bunch of parents who aren't going to be sending their kids back to school because, you know, the probability of getting COVID is pretty high. Um, but also the long term care home crisis. I mean, uh, I, yeah. you know, I, I started listening to your podcast recently for everyone listening. It's called Ontario Loud. Um, you're, you know, co-host uh, on it. Um, and, you know, talking about the long-term care home crisis, talking about a variety of things, but in particular, the long-term care home crisis. I mean, 
there was the public and you know the public inquiry report and the Ford government didn't really choose to take enough action and we see you know long-term care home deaths rising again in Ontario I mean how does that make you feel just watching that happen and unfold so okay let's sort of start from the beginning because I mean I think we need to remember that Doug Ford was doing a terrible job for the first two years that he was in office oh yeah He he didn't know where things were he didn't understand how the system worked he was uh, you know, a bull in a china shop, and he was breaking everything left, right, and center. <laughs> and then, to his credit, he stepped up at the beginning of the pandemic for the first few months and understood the weight of the problem that he had to deal with. And rightfully so, people saw that leadership in that moment as a positive thing. And that was good. And he wasn't squabbling with the federal government at the time. He was saying, you know, all the kumbaya and that we need to work together and pull ourselves up. And a lot of the reasons that so many of that first wave deaths happen were on his watch. And he said, we'll get to the bottom of this, we'll have an inquiry, we'll figure it out and we'll fix it. He was saying all the right things. I believe he is empathetic enough to understand the damage that was done and how it affects families in Ontario. I believe that in him. But then he had the chance to follow through with more than just words with real action, and I don't mean in the first wave, I mean in that summer when he decided, I'm gonna go on tour, while at the same time, we now have reports from that same time period in the summer, from medical experts, from the advisory boards, um, from the Auditor General, who said that they did not act on any of those things. That they sat on their hands and said, we probably did a good enough job with that first wave, we don't need to do anything else, let's cash in. And people were talking about a snap election and people were talking about how his numbers are so high and every, and you know, what a great job he did, but everything that has happened in this second wave is on him. You can say, you know, we couldn't have predicted what happened in the first wave and they did the best job they could. I agree with that. But in the second wave, every death that has happened, especially in long-term care homes, when they already had a report to say that these things needed to be fixed, Uh, and they still didn't do it, that's on them. And that's shameful that he would go out there and say, and, and basically say, Oh, my heart bleeds for you. I, I, I totally understand what people are feeling for this and we're going to fix it. I'm going to get to the bottom of this bullshit, right? Like this guy will say whatever it takes to, to make people think that he is doing the right thing for them. I don't buy it for a second. I think he, yeah, was doing okay in the first, in the first wave. But everything that has happened since is on him. And he's had the chance to turn this ship around, and he's refused to do it. He's refused to spend the money necessary, even the money that they've already earmarked for, for pandemic relief. Yeah, I mean, they how refused. much are they sitting on right now? Like, I, I yeah, see Michael Cotto tweeting about it all the time. Six, isn't it $16 billion now that they're sitting on federal? Yeah, there was at least $12 billion in contingency that was sitting there. Um, every dollar that's been spent on COVID relief, 97% of that relief in Ontario has come from the federal government. Mm-hmm. Basically, the, fe- the provincial government is sort of riding the wave of the federal government, sort of taking the leadership on a number of these issues. And they're cashing in by not paying out nearly as much. If, if, if Doug Ford really wanted to do what was best for the people of this province, he would have shut down, he would have paid businesses, he would have paid people, he would have made sure the supports were there. He would have made sure that people weren't getting evicted in, uh, during Christmas. 
He would have made sure that the businesses were able to stay open and that people were able to pay for their groceries. And it would have taken real courage and leadership to do that. And he chose not to. And the second wave is worse than it was, is going to be worse than it was in the first wave because we still haven't fixed the problems in the long-term care homes. And we've had nine months to fix it even after the reports have told us how to do it. Exactly. Right? They still refuse to spend the money that they need to spend in order to have more inspections, in order to invest in schools and long-term care facilities so that they have more space so that people aren't so bottlenecked next to each other and infecting each other. We know what the answers are, and it's just a matter of being willing to spend the money to do it, and he refuses to do it. And you know what, what sucks the most is that if they actually did it right the first time and learned their lesson and, you know, Gave, invested where they needed to invest. I mean, they have the opportunity to. Uh, instead, the premier, and like you know, many of his fellow premiers in Alberta and uh, other provinces as well, it, the, the priority is let's let's try to save money and save the economy first. But you know, the more you let this this COVID pandemic and this this COVID crisis, you know, grow and and prosper in Ontario, I mean. It wouldn't it rather be better to, um, you know, put put the money, put the investments where it's needed to be. I mean, Stephen Del Duca, he he proposed a uh, you know a back to school plan. It was like two point something billion dollars, uh, and it was very very comprehensive. It was a very great plan. But instead, the you know the Ford government chose to, uh, as we said before, go on the summer tour and leave it up to the you know the the regional boards to uh, decide how they're going to do this without, you know, barely any help from the provincial government. And as you said, the long-term care home crisis, they could have, and they chose not to uh, put an end to this situation. And we're seeing today, we're now averaging over 2000 cases per day, um, and which is, is beyond worse than the first wave. And so it's, it's a very, very uh, scary time in Ontario. And I think, as you said, uh, you know, Doug Ford is just giving us, you know, word sandwiches. There's, there's not, you know, really any, any policy and any, anything that's uh, substantial to putting an end to this crisis in Ontario. So, I mean, do we need any more reason to want to hashtag vote Ford out 2022? So um, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I mentioned your podcast in the middle of all that, and I want to, I want to get to that right now and just say, um, what was the, the motivation to want to start an Ontario exclusive, you know, politics podcast? Cause I started listening to it like, you know, on, on, on like a proper basis recently. And I'm really enjoying it. Cause you got like a nice, you know, chemistry going on with, uh, you know, the fellow staffers, but it's also very knowledgeable. You know, it's like, you listen for a couple, you know, 30 minutes and you learn so much about what's going on in the province uh, politically. And I mean, there's a lot and, and you actually hear about all these uh, mess ups that the Ford government is doing. And I feel like if every Ontarian was listening to your podcast, maybe they'd be voting uh, in a more uh, proactive manner next election. But what, what, what sort of um, motivated you to want to, you know, like start the podcast with, uh, you know, your, um, I guess, uh, friends and f former staffers and, uh, what sort of motivates you to want to get into that? Yeah, so, I, I mean, the original co-hosts uh, that were there, we, we all sort of knew each other from student government, and then we all kind of got into actual government in Ontario at, at uh, various points in our careers. Uh, so we've known each other for a long time, and I think we realized that there was, a, you know, there was a dearth of, uh, 
of political podcasts in Ontario focused on Ontario. I, I think you have Steve Pagan's On Poly, but that sort of just started in the last little while. Um, so there aren't really too many regular podcasts out there. And we obviously have a, a progressive bend uh, to our podcast. Uh, we're all uh, pretty progressive people out there. Um, but we also wanted to talk uh, a little bit about, you know, what goes on behind the curtain, how the sausage is made, so to speak, uh, in government. And uh, we all have a background in education. Uh, a number of the co-hosts are, uh, you know, former chiefs of staff and director of policy and things like that, uh, mostly in the education ministries. We've all got a pretty significant education ourselves. I went to Harvard and Queens and one of the co-hosts I met at Queens. Uh, and so we talk a lot about education, but also really about how policy is made and changed uh, in government. And so, you know, I, I think it's a fair criticism to say we, we've seen how things are done and when things aren't done properly, you know, somebody is held, needs to be held responsible and we kind of want to point that out, right? And, and basically be a forum for um, young progressive thinkers to think about uh, what we would do or what we would do differently um, uh, now or when we get back into office. So it's also a fun opportunity for us to just, you know, hang out every week and talk about some of the issues of the day and, and, and how we would see uh, doing things differently. But I think it's an important conversation. I'm glad you're listening. Um, we've, uh, we're, you know, we're on season four. I think we're about to start season five in the new year. Um, but uh, it, it's certainly a fun project to do. And more people should get involved in politics because that's how you get things changed. It's really easy to sit down, be kind of an armchair quarterback and complain about how the world is run. Um, but once you realize and, and get yourself a little bit invested and involved, um, you'll understand that it's not that difficult to change it yourself. You just have to um, participate. And whether, the, whether that's starting a podcast, listening to other people's podcasts, sharing that, uh, sharing those thoughts and ideas with your network and, and talking about how you're going to vote and why you're voting that way and talking about specific issues, whether it's basic income or education reform or childcare um, or how to deal with the pandemic, whatever it is, it's an important piece of the public discourse for us to continue talking about so that when election time comes around or when people are trying to be held account, they can be with an informed citizenry who understands what's going on, right? And so next time there's an election, hopefully we'll be better educated and we'll understand the issues better and we'll make sure that the politicians that are running for us, whether it's me or anybody else, um, you know, we know that they understand what the issues are and that we agree with what their solutions are going to be. Definitely. Well said, well said. Um, you talked about, uh, running for office and creating change and you, you did run in the 2018 election. Um, you know, you ran for the leader. I, I don't know if you've officially made any announcements publicly, but I want to ask in the, t the promising year of 2021, uh, will there perhaps be in, uh, you know, Alvin Tejdo running in a riding, uh, perhaps a nomination and then uh, running to be MPP? Is that something that's uh, in the near future? <laughs> yeah, perhaps? I mean, I wouldn't say that uh, Team Tejo is dead. I, I think we <laughs> are still at the beginning of what we're trying to do. Um, there is no announcement pending, uh, but I did say in the leadership that I do intend on running in the next uh, election in 2022. Um, but obviously, you know, a lot of things happen between uh between now and then and yeah. uh, timing is everything in politics so uh so we'll see it's still something i that i would like to do and i and i'm obviously uh 
passionate uh, advocate for a number of these issues and I want to see them um, fought for uh, either in the party or uh, in the government. Um, so, so we'll see, but uh, it's definitely something that I'm uh, keeping an eye towards. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Alvin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. It's been an absolute treat. Um, your podcast uh, that you co-host, Ontario Loud, everybody should go check it out. Uh, it's available on all podcasting uh, platforms. Uh, Alvin, where can people find you on you know, social media? Uh, well, I just hit, I, I mean, this is, I don't know if this is a humble oh, yeah. record, but I just hit 10,000 followers on Twitter. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> So that's, that's my, and I'm verified. So that's probably my biggest uh, claim to fame on social media. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm at Alvin Tejo, A-L-V-I-N-T-E-D-J-O on Twitter. Um, or you can use the hashtag Team Tejo and, uh, and I'm usually there pretty often. So um, yeah, catch me on there. Send me a DM if you have any questions uh, about anything. I'm always happy to chat uh, about, uh, about politics. Awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, he's Alvin Tejdo. Keep an eye out for him. He's going to be doing great things. I mean, he's already done great things, but even greater things in the near future. Alvin, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Irvin. Take care. Thanks. Bye.